Hi, it's Gabby Reese, and this podcast is powered by Laird Superfood. It was created in our kitchen by my husband, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton, and it all started with a simple idea. What began as Laird's secret for long-lasting energy on the waves is now Laird Superfood, offering a full range of delicious plant-based creamers, coffee, greens, and more. Visit LairdSuperfood.com and use the code GABBY2024 and save 20% on your first order. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Hi, this is Shannon Doherty, host of the new podcast, Let's Be Clear with Shannon Doherty. So in this podcast, I'm going to be talking about marriage, divorce, my family, my career. I'm also going to be talking a lot about cancer, the ups and the downs, everything that I've learned from it. It's going to be a wild ride. So listen to Let's Be Clear with Shannon Doherty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Each episode will feature a new guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. Patty Steinfurt on the podcast. Patty is a mental conditioning coach and assistant instructor at the University of Pennsylvania's Applied Positive Psychology Program. His latest book is Breakfast with Bales, the incredible true story of a dying coach and his final message about life, learning, and leadership. Patty is also a former professional football player. Patty, it's great to have you on the show today. Scott, thanks for having us. Great to be here. Lots of things we could talk about, and I, I thought we could start we talking about your experiences as a former professional football player and how that um, led you to see um, new, the psychology of sports in a new way. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I found a lot of success with psychology myself as an athlete. I wasn't super talented. I was obviously physically the right size to be able to um, compete at least, but I was definitely not the fastest uh, or the strongest or anything like that. I, I think my advantages I found came from um, my psychological skills and that was um, that was my first introduction to it, I guess, at the age of 17 and 18, uh, getting drafted as a professional back home and then learning the hard way also that even once you get there, it's still not over. There's still a lot of improving to do. Um, I had uh, the inglorious honor, I guess, of having a record by the time I finished my career of the longest time playing without actually getting on the field. I had five years as a pro and was injured pretty much the whole time. So there was a lot of frustration. And um, But you were still getting paid. I was still getting paid. I was You're a professional, professional. You're Yeah, professional. that's right. Um, that sounds, I want that gig. <laughs> I can, I, I can do that. I can do that myself. 
It sounds good. You you could have done it, man. You could. You I'm very could good at getting injured. No, I, I, what do you say? You you could have done it better than I did, probably. Uh, I could get injured better than you. I bet that is true. <laughs> that uh, is so, true. So I learned the hard way, I guess, about the resilience that's needed as well. It just it sounds like a cool life, but sometimes it's not that easy. So that led me to explore it um, academically, and as you said, I, I finished a master's recently, and now uh, working as a coach of the coaches and the leaders in elite sports teams, helping them be more resilient and be able to focus better. Yeah, there's a lot of talk in sports psychology about a concept called mental toughness. And I'm wondering if you apply any of those principles. I mean, resiliency is such a core aspect of that. Yeah, I think the the word mental toughness, it's a little bit like the word uh, leadership or culture like it's a really broadly defined word that yeah. means different things to different people and so when you look at it within the literature there are probably two main leaders of that research who have fairly specific definitions but if you're talking about you know watch you watch the nfl on a sunday and i'll refer to something as mental toughness there's not a lot of um, clarity around what that means some people would say it's being resilient and dealing with um, with hardships and setbacks and other people would say it's the ability to focus um, on a simple task when there's 50,000 people yelling at you and another 5 million watching at home. Yeah. So there are, there are many different aspects of it and we definitely touch on that. A lot of the resilience stuff that I do with the athletes is based on some of the UPenn training that they've done with the US military and within schools in terms of training optimism is really the main thing there. And then the other part that probably um, – the Seattle Seahawks have made the most visible is their, their incorporation of mindfulness into their training practices. And that's based around, I guess, the, at its core, the, the acceptance commitment therapy model, which is, you know, performance context, being able to accept that, yeah, people are yelling at me and it doesn't feel good, but I'm getting paid a lot of money to do this job and I just have to accept that that's one of the conditions of my employment. And then guys can still go about doing their jobs effectively. Same as, you know, having a crowd yelling at you or a 300-pound man standing five metres away wanting to bash your skull in. Yeah. Uh, they're pretty distracting, but, you know, that's part of the job. And so people got to accept that and be able to still stay in the moment. Yeah, for sure. And um, and a big a lot of what you talk about is how football can teach you a lot about life. And, yeah. And um, a lot of those insights came through your discussions with Bales, right? So, um, first of all, let me clarify something. You're a former professional football player, football meaning soccer. Is that right? Uh, (laughs) Football in Australia is a little bit like football in America. We've got our own Uh, football that no one else plays. (laughs) So, we're talking about Australia football. Because some people people might have heard an accent coming from you. So, (laughs) yeah. yeah, The the game's called AFL back home. um, But it it takes up the same position within society as what the NFL does here in that it's the biggest game in the country. Um, most popular game, the guys who are playing, are, you know, they make a very good living out of it and are considered semi-celebrities. So um, it's very similar. The gameplay is a little different, but a lot of the mental challenges are, are almost identical. Gotcha. So it actually, you, you do throw a ball. We are not allowed to throw a ball, actually. You kick the ball. Um, you can hand pass, which is where you punch the ball out of your own hand. Um, it's a 360. It's probably more like hockey than it is like football in that it's a 
360 game where you can get hit from any angle. Uh, You've full completely full lost me now. Yeah, I can't. Yeah. I can't. I, can't I, I don't know what it is. I need to watch a video. If, you, if you're listening, go to afl.com.au and you'll see some video of it. Great, great. So tell me a little bit. So I'm glad we got that out of the way. Um, tell me uh, who is Bales and um, how did you make contact with him? So Bales uh, is a um, – at the time I met him, he had just finished as a head coach of the team in Melbourne um, and we were both hired as coaches as part of the coaching staff at Adelaide at the same time. And, and um, moving over to Adelaide, I got a random email saying, Dean Bailey has offered to, for you to live with him and this is a guy who I only knew from TV. Um, I lived with him for the first month or two while when we were settling into a new town and then um, moved out. But we obviously then worked together for the next three um, seasons or two and a half seasons as it turned out. Um, and so Bales was a very respected coach. He'd played at one of the best teams in the 1980s, um, had coached, uh, been part of the coaching staff in a couple of uh, premiership teams. So he, he knew what success looked like and then he'd been a head coach at a very uh, a team that really struggled a lot. So he'd seen a, a whole range of things. And um, and so that's why he was brought to Adelaide as, a, as an experienced, uh, wise mentor, I guess, to some of the other coaches and some of the older players. Gotcha. So you got a chance to know him for a while before he got sick. Yes. Right. And so you really, you saw this, um, I mean, it was an amazing transition um, of such a strong character, right? Such a, a wise man and kind of going through this entire transition from not even having any idea that this was on the horizon to this, you know, happening and him dealing with um, what uh, became clear was going to be an inevitable close soon, you know, death, death, you know, uh, so it, it is quite an experience that for him and for you and, and for both of you guys together to kind of be on that journey together. Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, just to paint the picture for those who might not know the story, obviously he's a, it was fairly famous back in Australia, but um, Bales or Dean, with his first name, but everyone called him Bales, uh, was diagnosed with cancer on the eve of training camp the third year that we were working together. What kind of cancer? Uh, it was a mesothelioma, so it's a lining of the lung. Now, he'd never smoked, so it was a real surprise and it was a bit of a, I mean, I know now having, having uh, gone through everything that we dealt with, that once you get that, you're pretty much like your clock's ticking. There's no way you get it. You're going to beat it. There's no way to beat that cancer. Yeah. And um, and so, but I didn't know that at the time. And I said to Bales, I'll come and sit with you and, you know, you can give us some inspirational messages. I'll take it back to the team. That way you stay in contact while you're beating the cancer. And then you come back and everyone's happy. And then um, he was he and his wife were probably the only ones at that stage that knew how serious the diagnosis was in terms of how soon he would pass away. Uh, and so pretty quickly it became clear once I'd visited him once or twice that this was really serious and more more serious than I had thought. And so the, the talk quickly turned from, turned from short-term inspirational messages to some real deep wisdom. And for me it was, as you said, it was a really special experience that, uh, that literally uh, changed my life in a number of ways. Why did you decide to do this? Uh, my role... Uh, you know, in terms of the mental conditioning stuff, I was doing a similar role back at Adelaide. And so part of what we do within that, uh, in some instances, is to help the team craft an identity, to build some some leadership and a, and a team culture, I guess, around certain themes. And so I saw it as a, a, a fairly 
normal step in terms of, look, while he's struggling, we'll help him out. I work on the people side of the team rather than t- the tactical side, I guess. Um, and also we, we had both, when we lived together, discovered a shared interest in psychology. So Bales was never trained, but he was always super interested in a, a Malcolm Gladwell or a Daniel Coyle sort of a pop psychology book. And so when when he fell ill, I knew that we'd read Tuesdays with Murray, both of us, and had enjoyed it. And I just suggested to him, look, how about I come and do that? I'll just sit here. You tell me some stuff. I'll take it back, not knowing that it would end the same as Tuesdays with Murray did as well. Gotcha. So um, I have uh, quite a few listeners in the in the sports psychology community, coaches and players, and they're going to want they're going to be very interested in the, this advice and, and in the in the wisdom. So for the remainder of this podcast, could we could we go through some of the great insights and then, um, you know, let's not give it all away. I want people to buy the book. Um, it's uh, It drops December 7th, right? That's right. Yeah. And all the, all the uh, proceeds go to his family. So it's not, it's not a profit-making uh, exercise. This is really just to, to help out the family that he left behind. Wonderful, wonderful. So yeah, let's let's go through um, the ones that you're you're comfortable uh, sharing right now because, like I said, I do have quite a few listeners that um, work in the field of sports psychology and and would love to take some of those insights to their own uh, their own work. Definitely, definitely. One of, one of the things that became apparent really quickly, um, and I sort of knew it intuitively, having lived with him, and he just randomly offering a place to stay. Um, but one of the things that became clear early on in the visits was that performance actually starts with people. Um, and so I probably before these visits and throughout my career had, had a, a view of the world of it's a, it's dog eat dog. Um, you don't need to worry about friendships. I'm here for business. And so I don't need to get along with people. I'm just going to be good enough to make it. Um, and particularly, uh, when you get into a leadership position within a, a sports team. So as a coach or as a leading athlete, there are a number of uh, stories that Bales told and also examples he gave that really, once I started looking into it um, in terms of the psychology research, there's a heap of evidence that stacks up that actually having really good relationship skills um, are, are really key to improving the results of a team. So the, um, you know, the, there's obviously the, the classic study by George Vallant in terms of the um, the impact of warm relationships on people's outcomes across a number of measures, um, both obviously uh, personal outcomes but also um, education, income, all sorts of things. Um, but then there's also some, some thing about uh, you know, Kelly McGonigal's work on compassion and its ability to, to develop improved willpower for the athletes. So there's a number of things that um, the more I looked into it, the more surprised I was, but it also really rang true with Bales. He was a fantastic people person and his people skills made the teams around him develop quicker than uh, you know a, a similar talented team might have without him. Yeah, no, that's great. You know, the importance of uh, social relationships has been shown to be so important for um, you know education context, business context. It's something that transcends um, sports. So if you're a coach, how can you be, you know, cultivate these warm relations, but also you also want to show tough love sometimes, right? mm-hmm. you know, you want to, um, you want to motivate people to work harder, for instance. Um, yeah. and, and how do you do that without having them walk over you? Well, I think uh, you actually put me onto some great research as I was writing. So once Bales had passed away and I started really digging into transcribing our visits and, and trying to, trying to, make sense of everything um 
I asked you a question, Scott, about are there, are there, um, is there research or are there examples of environments where you provide certain um, environmental factors that allow people to flourish, particularly creatives or performers? Um, and a, a lot of the research pointed towards, um, I think it's a fit, well, sorry, for me it seems fairly uh, well known, but I'm not sure for some listeners they may not know, of the idea of developing autonomy, mastery and relatedness um, yeah. within. So if we're talking about self-determination theory there as the, as the big overarching umbrella, but that as a coach, if you can engender that within your players or athletes, and this goes for teachers as well or mentors in a business sense, the more you can have the three key psychological needs met for the people you're trying to lead, the longer they're going to persist in whatever the task is that you're giving them. So um, improved, obviously, within a sporting context, there's always an element of we're trying to master something. We're going to be working on a skill. So that one sort of takes care of itself. And I say, with most of the coaches I work with, that's a pretty natural thing that a lot of people have switched on to. The other two, though, are really important and are often underestimated, the ability to um, have the player make a choice about what they're doing. So not just giving them the answers but having them be involved in the problem solving and actually giving them the freedom to almost play a little bit, particularly play in small groups, which allows them to develop the, the autonomy and also the, the relationships that help them stick at things a little bit more. One of the, A great quote from Vincent Lombardi, um, who's the the best non-trained psychologist coach ever uh, was that uh, those with the most invested are the last to surrender. And that's a fantastic layperson summary of this bit of research or this, and I say bit of research, it's a, it's a massive body of research around the, the more autonomy there is, so the more people have actually chosen and invested themselves into the task, the longer they will persist. And that research comes up in education, in healthcare, in sport. There's a heap of examples of that concept actually coming coming aloft. Very interesting concept that that the more you know that you know autonomy and freedom doesn't that also come with a certain kind of detachment? Like you were talking about the importance of mindfulness, right? <coughs> mm -hmm. I'm trying to I'm trying to square away the importance of mind reconcile the importance of kind of having a detached sort of. Well, I mean, mindfulness is is obviously a very intense. Um, awareness and heightened awareness and focus, but at the same time, it's also a detachment from your emotional reactions to immediate stimulus, mm -hmm. right? So you can be really invested in what you're doing um, and be free and autonomous, and yet still have this kind of um, stolid, you know, very um, stoic, I should say, temperament mm -hmm. about what you're getting. So you know, all these things are important, right? Yes. You know, to, yeah. So um, they may seem on the surface incompatible, but you would you would argue they're not, right? Definitely, definitely not. And I think that's a really important um, clarification around the word autonomy. Um, some people look at it as freedom, and particularly coaches, they, they tend to cringe a little bit when they say, "Well, if we if we give them too much of this, the inmates are going to run the asylum." Like they, that's why a coach is here. I'm supposed to teach these people, right? Um, but autonomy doesn't necessarily mean freedom. It means choice. So you chose to be doing this. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to be having every single choice in the, on the menu, but you have some autonomy to say that, okay, I decided to do this. Now I've got skin in the game. Um, and the ability to, to have that present, does not. it's not mutually exclusive from the ability to also be emotionally separate, particularly within a performance moment. So in the third play, 
of a final drive in a two-minute drill, obviously we want people to be motivated, but their ability, particularly if we're trained them right in preparation, their ability to stay disconnected from the outcome and focus just on the performance cues that they need to is a, like that's one of the biggest predictors of performance in a in an instant is their ability to not think outcome but think process. Right. Yeah, and that's such an important lesson in life. Like you said, you learn a lot from football about life. Yeah. Is there is there a place for daydreaming at all in sports? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think part of the mindfulness um, approach is. We don't, want, we don't sit there and let them just daydream for 20 minutes, but there is a lot to be said about two parts of, of daydreaming. One is the, the use of imagery in sport. It's a, it's a fairly um, well-established psychological practice, I guess, and, and it has a lot of um, layperson support from performers who say, you know, you know, I pictured doing this. Tiger Woods is a huge rap for it, um, although Tiger's results these days aren't fantastic, but... Uh, there are a number of fantastic, you know, best ever performers, Michael Jordan, um, a lot of performers across different disciplines in sports who used imagery, which is a form of controlled or positive daydreaming, if you will. Um, but there's Michael also, Jordan used imagery? Did yeah, a lot. He did? He yeah, said he, he did. did. Okay. Yeah. And then the, the other element of that is also the, uh, the, the idea of mental recovery. So when... I tried to explain the, the amount of cognitive load on an NFL footballer to someone in at the Positive Psychology Center by describing it like this. Think of the periodic table and you have to memorize the periodic table twice, so there's two different types of periodic table, plus you have to be able to recall it on spec knowing which atoms and ions can go up or down one period to make different elements and then also uh, you have to do that while your heart rate's at 180 beats a minute and there's a 300-pound person standing in front of you wanting to bash you in the face. Go. That's the sort of cognitive load that you have to deal with as an NFL footballer. Wow. And so not only the installation of that knowledge, but the recollection plus the physical load, there's a lot to be said about the ability to shut down for 20 minutes and just not, you know, not force any thought but allow your thoughts to wander and have some freedom in that sense because by the time you come to game time, we can't have your mind wandering at that point. That's a perfect metaphor for how I felt when I took the SATs. <laughs> <laughs> like the whole thing with the three hundred pound, per, like the whole thing was exactly, exactly how I how I felt. Um, <laughs> obviously, that's important. So there's a place, there's a time and place for meditation, for mind, mindfulness, and there's a time and place for you know the preparation stage of Definitely. of of visualization. Um, do you, are you familiar with any recent research on visualization in sports? Uh, I, I'm not a huge fan of it. Um, it. It has mixed support. And so there are some who will tout it as this is the most important um, tool you can use. And it's one of the easiest. Most of us are, particularly if you're a performer, you can picture, you can create a mental picture of yourself executing fairly easily. Most people do that relatively simply. Um, but there's mixed results in terms of how effective it is as a tool for improving performance. It can improve your sense of self-efficacy and it can improve your confidence because you see yourself performing well. But that doesn't necessarily translate into your ability on the field to do what we're asking you to do. And so the separate, the the, um, right. the use of imagery, for me at least in my programs, will often be more about problem solving in advance. 
So we'll picture something, we'll picture you do it, doing it well, and then we'll say, but, oh, something just happened there in the ball. What, what might have happened if the ball didn't go the way you wanted it to go? Okay, so if that's going to happen next time, what would you do to adjust? So we're almost preparing answers in advance. Yes. Because the game's not always going to go how you like. But when it does, when something does pop up, you've already sort of practiced your response to that. Very cool. Yeah, someone told me once that a good way to overcome social anxiety is to like before I enter the party, like right before I enter, just imagine that like I'm the life of the party, that like that people like like me. Yeah. You know, and that that really it really matters. Like when you get in there, you you send off that vibe. Exactly. Uh, like vibes matter. Like how much in sports do like vibes that you put off, you know, like matter to other players? Well, I think uh, to other players a lot. I think there's a um, you know there's a lot of research around emotional contagion in a lot of different areas and in sports it's no different uh cam newton is the perfect example at the moment who is over the top with his confidence and his bravado and celebrations but it it, it does lift the other players around him they there are some players who have a, a um, outsized impact on the on the guys beside them and potentially the the opposition as well it can be more demoralizing if we keep attacking this guy but he just doesn't seem to get deflated like there's nothing we can do to turn him down um, that definitely does have an impact. I don't know of any specific research in sports that has investigated that, but I do know, obviously, of the emotional contagion research. And then there's also um, how does the it impact in- you, yeah, the individual, yeah, yeah. I think I think within subjects. So, in terms of your ability to go out and do what you need to do, if someone feels better, the the, the I guess the best way to explain it is they're less likely to question the first thought that pops into their head. And that's the entire point of mindfulness in terms of being able to get into the zone or prepare for a performance mindset is we do this stuff so that you can quieten your head and stop second-guessing yourself. Everyone who gets particularly to a semi-elite or an elite level of sport, whether it's in college, even if you're playing college football and you're not a starter, you're still better than 95% of the rest of the world at what you do. And so there's no... And even if you can't play for five years at all, Exactly. Well, yeah. Exactly. I was one of the two percent. Uh, your ability to, when you get into that position, not question your talent is one of the big things. Most people get in their own way in that instance, and they worry, "Oh, what if I, you know, I've, I've got to be really careful about my follow through on this shot because there's a million people watching." But that stops you from doing what you've trained yourself to do for ten years, and your ability to not think while you execute is vital to execution. You're right. Once you've built up the uh, the expertise base, that's you, right. You want to let the it go all, automatic, but there's this whole process where you're you're really making the conscious unconscious. Exactly, and that's a, that was the probably the second thing that came out um, from the time with Bales was the idea that there's no magic pill. Now it was it was almost a um, an ironic play on words because he was undergoing chemotherapy at the time, and often there was pills sitting on the table in front of us, but. We talked a lot about um, coaches often, um, and, and it's no different from leaders in business or, or teachers who want to know the next big trick. What's the trend? What do we do here? How do we make someone more gritty? Or how do we make, how do we get them better quicker? There's no real magic trick. Like whatever it is, if you want to build a grittier kid, you have to do a lot of things over a long period of time. You can't just click your fingers and then after a six-week program, we've got more, more grit. Um, same goes for developing skill or expertise or your ability to um, 
to chunk information as an expert. You know, that's one of the things that Anders Ericsson talks a lot about is the, the 10,000 hours of practice does have a lot of, um, a lot of, I guess, neural plasticity in it in terms of wiring the right pathways. But there is also an element of, I've seen this scene so many times that I'm able to tune into the right cues. And that only happens from seeing the scene so many times. We can't fast forward the 10,000 hours. Um, now, there's there's obviously a lot of research that um, since that big, um, obviously Gladwell was probably the one who made that the most widely known theory, but there's a lot of counter, counter research that, that argues against that, but there is still a lot of, uh, in my eyes, and I'm not sure about your thoughts actually, Scott, but there there is a lot of a lot to be said about the time required to build mastery, particularly in a in a very specific skill, physical skill domain. Yeah, when we're talking about mastery, that's absolutely correct. I wonder about the difference between mastery, however, and creativity. Um, and I wonder in sports, like what is a creative, um, you know, I don't think that like deliberate practice, just following a set of rules and practice training regimen is going to make you necessarily an imaginative or creative performers, you know, sports performer. Um, but even if it gets you to mastery, um, yeah. what is what is the difference between an expert uh, or even a professional um, athlete and and someone who's a really creative athlete. Yeah, I think that's a really fantastic distinction. And there's a great story within the book that Bales actually details um, some interactions he has with a player who is, if you gave him something to do for ten thousand hours, he would do it, and he'd do it in nine thousand hours. Like he was a great um, student to teach because you know you're not going to get any pushback, and he'll do what he's told. But the problem was when we changed game plans with us as new coaches coming in, he got stuck in his one way and he wasn't able to get out of what he used to do because that was how he trained for 10,000 hours. And so one of the important things uh, I think some of the research shows up is it's good to have a base. So you have to have – before you can go and ad lib on a, and freestyle on a, uh, a concerto solo, you need to be able to play your scales. You need to have that stuff down pat and your technique to be able to reach and move and flex. But once you get to that point, then you almost have to do the opposite. So the 10,000 hours isn't rigid and constructed. It's play, do something different. And actually we force the athlete to think outside of what they've been trained. So the great example from the book was Bales told this guy that we want you to start practicing being different than what you're used to. So every day when you drive to training, You've got to go a different way. You can't go the same route every day. So when you get to that place that you normally go straight ahead, you've got to turn left and then make it up from there. And over time with that as a practice, and the kid still – I spoke to him as I was writing this. He still does it two years later. Um, is You start to get the individual more comfortable with freestyling and being able to not feel like things have to be this way for them to be successful. That's great. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about today? I think that one of the, and this is probably the biggest life-changing thing for me coming out of Bales's, the, the conversations I had with Bales was the idea of um, he, he used a, a metaphor towards the end uh, when I was talking about why he coached and, and what, you know, what do you get out of coaching. And he was really strong on, on this point of the, there was an empty coffee cup and he said, look, to me coaching is a little bit like this cup in that the, the cup doesn't exist just to hold whatever you put in it and, and keep it to itself. The cup exists to pass that into something bigger. So the coach is, you, you have a certain amount of knowledge and experience and that's inside you, but 
really the only point of that ever being there is so you can pour it into something else and particularly into something bigger than yourself. Um, and he, he was really connected with uh, a strong sense of purpose and that, that really struck me as one of the turning points for me of having me look at what I was doing at that time and that's what led me to move over here to the US knowing that there was probably a, a larger a larger calling I felt. I felt pulled towards doing some more research in positive psychology and um, working at a, a higher level here to to impact the lives of coaches and athletes and not just help them get better and grittier and have better results. And that's awesome because I'm a competitor and I love people helping people win. But more to the point, changing the way that people are coached to, so that we improve their lives at the same time as improving their results. And I think for for me, that was, there was a lot of stuff in there towards the end of the book about the legacy of a leader, um, the ability for a leader to leave behind a neural imprint on someone that they've taught that even if you do move on to another team or, God forbid, you die, you're still alive within the minds of everyone that you've touched as a teacher or as a coach or as a leader. Um, and that really, you know, that was life-changing for me. That's great. I think it's a good place to end. Um, really uh, recommend that people read the book. I found it very insightful and wise, but also just very touching. You know that there these two people got together. They cared about each other so much, and um, and you know it's very clear that um, you know he gained from you as well as you gaining from him. So um, thanks for for sharing some of that today on the on the show. Great. Thanks for having us, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. I hope you found this episode just as informative and thought-provoking as I did. If you'd like to read the show notes for this episode or hear past episodes, you can go to thepsychologypodcast.com. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity.